Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with poet David Vandenberg, author of Love Letters from an Arsonist. From very early age, I really felt like I had life and death in my hands and that I, I really got an unvarnished look at it. We'll be back with David Vandenberg after these essential words. So this past June marked the 10th anniversary of First Draft. The first episode aired on June 10th, 2013. And if the person I am today told my younger self that I'd be nearly 450 episodes deep into this show in 10 years, I would have laughed at my future self. But alas, here we are. And how did we get here? At what I would estimate is 9,000 hours of work I've put into this podcast. That's reading researching, interviewing, editing, arranging the guests. I am the entire staff. And I guess the answer is, how did we get to 9,000 hours? Is a mixture of insanity and blind but ferocious dedication to sharing conversations about craft and literature. This isn't AI, folks. This is weekends where I sit and read and so many things in my life that get fully ignored for this endeavor And I honestly consider it a gift to the world. It's a place where my passion and I hope some amount of finesse and skill marry together to offer this conversation you're about to hear directly to you in the intimate way that audio works. And if you get anything out of this episode or the hundreds that came before or hopefully the hundreds that will come next, I am asking you in the most honest and authentic way I know how to please support this show. While I love making it and talking to authors and the entire endeavor fills me up, it does not pay the bills. And if we want to support art in this world and conversations about art and lift the curtain up and really talk about how art gets made, well, your support will help keep this show alive. It's here today because of listeners who became supporters. And that's the truth. So I'm asking you to bolster this rich dialogue, this juicy material with financial support. It's not easy to do, but sticking with this for 10 years wasn't easy to do either. And it's not going to be easy in the future. But if nothing else, it's reliable and consistent. With every episode, I lean into the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I think about them as I create this show, and I hope you can feel them in the content. I simply cannot take this time to create First Draft without your support. Please join me on this journey by becoming a donating member to the First Draft community. 
You can support the show today at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate on a monthly or annual level. As a thank you to my patrons, you receive access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it to the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes so you won't have to hear this again, and writing tips from my guests. Again, you can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned. At the end of the interview, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. Thank you for your listening support. And thank you for being here with me today, right here in this moment. And on to the 400-something episode. My guest today is poet David Vandenberg, author of the chapbook Love Letters from an Arsonist. Vandenberg grew up hunting and fishing in the Florida swamps and later studied anthropology, religion, and archaeology at Rollins College before moving to Los Angeles to work as an actor. He has a JD and a Master of Laws in Taxation from Loyola Law School. He's the founder of Prometheus Dreaming, a digital literary journal. Love Letters from an Arsonist conjures images of a dangerous landscape and highlights material that reveals a Southern Gothic sensibility, which includes both charm and brutality. Some poems have religious themes, while others focus on the harsh nature of the elemental world. The poems carry strange rhythms, vibrant energy, troubled themes, and underlying mystery. They are filled with loss and people struggling with the decay of their inner and outer worlds in a fertile yet raw landscape. We began our discussion with David Vandenberg sharing how the title, Love Letters from an Arsonist, does not exactly deliver standard love letter content. Like when people hear the title, uh, they definitely are not imagining the book itself. Um, like I was talking about it to a friend and he was like, oh, I don't know if I'll get it. I don't really like love poetry. It's like, no, no, no. This is, this is 100% not love poetry. So the title for the collection comes from a poem, uh, Love Letters from an Arsonist. And the idea behind the poem was, uh, well, I'll, I'll put it this way. So I, I studied a lot of psychoanalysis in college as, as part of like a religion and philosophy undergrad. Uh, and uh, I did a lot of, of reading of Lacan. And so the idea of, um, of desire sort of always seeking its own, always seeking, a, it's always seeking something else, right? And so in a way, it's, it's always setting itself up for failure. It's always seeking its own destruction. Or yeah, it's always seeking its own destruction. And that sort of like Hegelian dialectic. And I saw that pattern in myself, and I saw that pattern in people who were, who were close to me and people who I love very much, just seeking or going after something in, in such a way without understanding um, that you're setting yourself up for, for failure. And it's just this, this emotional and you know, psychic um, cycle that you're, you're getting locked into. And to me, that's sort of what it means to be an arsonist it's it's engaging in these sort of self-destructive um patterns and, and behaviors um and so the the poem of course is about it's about you know toxic masculinity it's about um you know sort of leaving a, a trail of of shattered relationships behind you um, a sense of always feeling unfulfilled 
And then when I was trying to come up for the title of the collection, uh, I was inspired by my religious upbringing, by um, you know my my religious studies uh, major in college, and I wanted to do something that felt like it had um, this this quasi mystical or quasi religious tone to it. Um, and in particular, I was drawn to the idea of putting together collections of letters, sort of like these old the the epistles from like the the old founders of the church or the old leaders of the church and, and, you know, grouping each po- or putting each poem as an individual letter and then bundled together with a bunch of epistle uh, as like a, a single group of epistles. And so to me, it was like, Oh, then this is the perfect title for the collection because the whole thing is just going to be letters. Then was your upbringing very religious? You, you mentioned that I'm curious how that influenced you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I grew up, uh, Russian Orthodox or, you know, American Orthodox, um, which if you like go into the history of the church, it's sort of like the, the church itself existed as the Catholic Orthodox church or the Orthodox Catholic church. And then following, you know, various political machinations, um, you had the Western church split off into Catholicism and the Eastern church remained the Orthodox church. And so that was what I was brought up in. And it's, you know, it's not so much like a, like a, you know, fundamentalist cult or something like that, but it, it's instead this, this very old tradition that's sort of steeped in, um, there's like, there's, I think there's a little bit more like mysticism in it, um, than in Catholicism, you know, Catholicism is so focused on just like the praxis, um, you know, like being a cat, being a good Catholic means like following Catholic doctrine. I feel, I felt like orthodoxy had a lot more wonder in the world. Um, but, but we were, we were very, very religious, um, you know, attended church two to three times a week, um, you know, during the, the holiday or the religious holiday season, you'd go more often for a few hours of pop. I was like an altar boy. I did church school. Um, so I was, I was very, very religious and it, it really bothered me, you know, even, even as a young kid, just believing everything wholeheartedly, I really felt sort of consigned to damnation. We had a a preacher who was really big into, into hellfire, hellfire and brimstone. And it really seeped its way into my subconscious mind, my unconscious mind. Where I, I just kept having these nightmares about you know the the afterlife and and it it just sort of messed me up so badly that um, when I was a teenager and I left the church um, you know I, I had a lot of resentment towards it and then as I got older I, I realized that it was such an important part of me that I needed to study it more and that I needed to understand that before I could really understand myself. What's interesting to me, and maybe I I didn't fully understand, you were talking about desire in terms of like what a philosopher said and mm-hmm. and the title. And what I saw in so many of these poems was I saw bones and I saw hell and I saw ghosts and I saw abandonment and fires and preachers and death and curses and guns and people, parents leaving their kids and you know, this swampy landscape. And so I was curious about how desire fits in, if if it is an umbrella over all that, or maybe it isn't. 
it's this this desire for fulfillment. I think that that's what it is. It's like it's a desire to feel whole. It's a desire to feel like everything is put together. Uh, but uh, that's that's sort of set against the reality of everything, which is which is cracking and crumbling. And I think that that's part of why desire always ends up like destroying itself is because whenever desire sort of confronts reality, that this this thing just it never matches up to to what you had hoped it was going to be. Uh, and I, you know, I have a line like that in Love Letters from an Arsonist, which is. Um, why don't we read the whole poem? Sure. Oh, even better. Uh, so this is Love Letters from an Arsonist, the title poem. Daddy was a wildfire burned himself inside out, spat out pine cone suns so it can only grow in flames, held me close so I burned his fingers, kissed me on flintlock mouth, belched smoke, laughed, that's my boy. I love stars and tarry skies, pick them out of constellations like loose diamonds, turned to glass and greasy palms, smashed to pieces against shipped asphalt. I said, walk on boy, that bridge was made to burn and you more tender than man. Drank gasoline from mama's breast, breathe fire when I dream. Love you strong as devil winds. Remember me when sky is red and night haze reads 110, moon as big as it's ever been, because baby, I've been burned before and you're the match for me. Saw the future in the blaze. Ash footprints walk backwards and half ghost step. White corn liquor sings. And all I ever was or am is nothing like I hope to be. Found God out back making mash. Ask, why you make me like this? He say, there are a hole deep down at the bottom of you. I ask why. He say, my son, because you're like me. So, yeah, it's that, it's that, that sense that, um, you know, you never, you never live up to, to what you had imagined, what you had hoped, what you had dreamed for yourself or that the, the experiences in your life never add up to, to, you know, what you thought that they might add up to. And that's why, like, I, I, you know, love getting into sort of the nitty gritty of everything, getting my, my hands like into the guts of a poem or into the, the guts of reality to, to really show it for, for what I see it as. You know, a lot of these poems are really dark. Do you, <laughs> is that what you see it as? Yeah. Uh, it's funny. I, I had a, I called my grandfather after I got him the book and I was like, oh, what'd you think about it? And he was like, are you okay? <laughs> it was like, I had, I had you know, no idea that you saw things like this. So it's, it is, it is dark. Maybe, maybe it's darker than I, than I realized, but, but to me, like it is, it is how I see things, you know, I to sort of put things in perspective, right. Or it's like, I grew up, you know, out trekking or trekking around in the swamps, um, you know, shooting guns and, and hunting animals where I was, I was killing, cleaning, uh, the corpses of these you know, dead animals when I was four or five, six years old, right. Where my, you know, my dad, who's a doctor would sit there and, you know, we'd field dress a carcass and, um, and, you know, he was very methodical about it. He, he, for him, it was this like this really amazing opportunity to, to connect with me and to teach me what he knows. 
and it would be you know he we'd slit the the stomach open or the belly open i mean he'd take the organs out and sort of cut the organs open for me and be like you see this is the stomach so from a very early age i really felt like i had you know life and death in my hands and that i i really got an unvarnished look at it i, I remember how i felt every time that i killed an animal and it just it felt like such a terrible responsibility or like a terrible burden that i felt like i was I don't know, the, the only one who sort of, or not the only one, um, I felt like I had to really appreciate the full power um, that was in my hands. Um, and to do that, like that, that was the only way to, to sort of honor the animal that I had killed was like to sit there and sit with it and sit with this dead thing or sit with this dying thing. Um, and so I think that that sort of, to me, it's like a, a quasi-mystical sense of, of um, the world really stuck through, or really stuck with me and, uh, and continued as a through line with, in, in my writing. I think sometimes there can be sort of the mystical at the moment of violence. You're talking about when you're hunting, but there's other poems in here that have death and bones and ghosts and guns and fires like we mentioned um and there is something maybe mystical right up against that so just curious when you hear me say that what your reaction is yeah i i completely agree um you know again growing up in the in the swamp um i had these really mystical experiences in nature where um you know we'd be sitting around the bonfire at night and it's you know just five of us in you know i don't know a hundred thousand no ten thousand ten thousand acres of land um and uh you just sit there by the fire and sort of like sing songs or recite poems or tell stories while in sort of the the background of everything um you know, out in the darkness, you can you can hear the beasts sort of, you know, the cattle lowing, you can hear the coyotes calling. Um, you know, sometimes if, if something gets killed, you hear it sort of like screeching out there. Um, and so I, I really felt this, this, or I had this sense that the, the veil between the natural and the supernatural world, or, you know, veil between the here and the thereafter, was really very thin. Um, and uh, what what really makes that veil so thin is is the violence that's sort of inherent in the natural world. Um, so I, I definitely agree with you that there's this quasi-religious, quasi-mystical thing that's like right there at the knife point of, of natural violence. We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. 
Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Well, let's talk a little more specifically about some of these poems. You have your your poetry collection broken up into three um, epistles. The first one is called Salt River Blues. The second one is called Midnight Gospel. And the third one is called Pinecone Sun. And as a reader, I felt, you know, when I was reading the first part, the Salt River Blues, I felt really deeply entrenched in the earth. I felt the swampiness. I felt sort of the the character of rural Florida and some of the issues that people who are maybe impoverished face there broken families, um, troubled families, um, the idea of going to hell, people kind of missing and leaving. Um, and in the second one, the second section about the midnight gospel, it felt more sort of churchy, more preachy, more kind of stories of preachers and more, um, like biblical in a way. And then the third part, the Pinecone Sun, um, felt more uplifting. It felt like more that there was some more hope. Yes, yes, definitely. I think that's a really good um, description. Yeah, the, the first part it really is just this deep dive into the Southern Gothic. You know, it presents this rogues gallery of, of outsiders and it follows them along this. Um, this sort of you know decrepit or decaying landscape um, as they uh, you know as they sort of confront the the their brokenness and the brokenness of the world that's around them. Um, then the second part is uh, it, it's very focused on religion, um, on sort of struggles against or struggles with alienation and, and struggles against an absent god or an absent father figure. Um, to try to look at sort of the the larger question of you know why why is it like this or why does it have to be like this um just to try to you know shake someone by the ears and say you know it doesn't have to be but this is you know this is how it is this is how it is right now and then the third part is um you know it's very confessional those are those are poems that are sort of directly from my my experience i mean all of them all of them are from my experience but these are are you know me the the writer speaking directly to um the reader about something that i experienced as my take on it um so i'm glad that uh i'm glad you found hope in there i wasn't sure that there was as much of that but uh i'm happy that that comes through so i've always i've always described myself um you know as as an atheist but but nonetheless as sort of a hopeful atheist or or a a hoping atheist where I, you know, I find myself wishing for wonder. I find myself, um, you know, looking, looking to be an optimist, even though the, the, the odds are against it all. There's a lot of energy around ghosts. Yes. Yes. Uh, a lot of ghosts in there. I think there's a, there's a poem where I say, um, I asked, I asked God what he thought about my poems and he told me that I wrote about ghosts too much. <laughs> I said it was his fault for putting them there. 
so on top of sort of that that thin line between the natural and the supernatural, the real and the, and the you know hereafter, um, which I think makes for just like such an interesting setting for a story. I like having the ghosts as as a sort of the the repressed history, the repressed past um, coming to light. You know, uh, the the people who were never able to tell what happened to them or never able to share their stories. You know, coming to the coming to the foreground to be able to sort of deliver um, deliver their message um, that that they had you know formerly never been able to uh, to convey before. You have a poem called "The Midnight Gospel." Midnight Gospel. Listen, mud cats sing of the upside down with the damned fry and cast iron. Pa taught me to dry chicken livers and slip them onto hooks. Instead, we had dominion over the creeping things of the land and the things of the sea and the things of the sky. And when Brother winged a doe, we called her tripod, and every three-legged white tail we crossed was forever spared. Quail tell that the sun is not but the barrel of a 20-gauge, and the righteous spend their lives in the dirt, but the vainglorious cross its face in a flight just to fall in thunder. Ma taught me to train the dogs with iron hand, and when the doctor fed my black and white bitch poison, she called to say the soul was eternal, and the dark and the dark beyond is filled with love, and whether we're in heaven or hell depends on if you'll take it. But the owl told me he's not scared of nothing, because his big eyes saw that our spirit lives in our shadow, and grows longer with each hurt we cause, till that shadow is big as a peacock's tail. And when we die, it weighs us down, so we struggle to take flight and spend the rest of time creeping underfoot until the things that have dominion over us wake from their long sleep and swallow us whole. And I doubt him, but I know better since seeing the veil in the mirror at the wake of April last. Yeah, I think one of the reasons why I turned down the corner of that was this idea of dominion. And this was, you know, this is something that my my father always said to us, you know, again, very, very devout man. Um, where he said, you know, son, like we have been given dominion over the land. We have been given dominion over, you know, these animals. Um, and it's, you know, it's this idea, uh, you know, to him that was all about, you know, it's about control and, and, um, you know, exercising that power over these things. But then there's, there's the flip side to it, which is the responsibility of stewardship, right? I think that's, that's a word that gets used a lot in the, in the religious tradition. Um, you know, having a stewardship over the land where, where sort of the land has been put in trust for you to manage. You know, when I, when I look around at, at the world today, um, you know, it's always something that, that I see that we have, failed terribly at, you know, we, we've terribly failed to, you know, be, be good stewards of the earth, you know, whether or not we have some sort of divine claim of right over the, the animals, you know, not, not, you know, regardless of that, that, that sort of, we have the, we have the ability to exercise the power. And so we have that responsibility as well. And so that's why I, you know, I, I always like to include that sort of just the the extra turn of the knife there where it's like all right but like what about those things that have dominion over us what about those powers that are like beyond our um 
you know, beyond our knowledge or beyond our understanding or, or beyond our own power. What happens when sort of the, the world turns on us? Yeah. And, and what do you think about sort of the idea that it's so egocentric to think that we have dominion over the animals in the earth? I don't know. That's a, you know, it's a good question. I think, uh, you know, just cause it's, it's something that was, was drilled into me where it's like, you know, it's this idea that just because we have the might to make it so gives us the right to do it, you know? Um, when of course that's sort of like the, the worst route of, um, of, of so much in human history, you know, it's sort of that, that drive to authoritarianism and drive to, to control where it's like, well, I'm able to do it. So it's justified that I can do it. And, uh, you know, to some extent it, it makes sense where, you know, if you're talking about managing the land or you're talking about managing populations, um, then, you know, yeah, if you know, we're, we're the ones who sort of put everything out of wax, so it makes sense for us to come in and try to maintain some sort of balance but I think that you always have to keep in mind that like, no, we really are living on, on the, the edge of a knife and we don't understand, we don't fully understand the consequences of our actions um, and that we are currently driving the earth towards, uh, you know, maybe not a global extinction, but what will certainly be our own extinction. In the third section, Pinecone Sun, as I said, um, they felt, you know, a little more hopeful. There's also, you know, more per- more personal. I think the poems, I felt like you were bringing the reader closer to what was going on for you or use the I a lot. What does Pinecone Sun mean to you? Yeah, so, um, you know, like so much else of this book, it comes from the poem Love Letters from an Arsonist, where, you know, I wrote that line of, um, you know, my father spat out pinecone suns, but can only grow in flames. That idea of of um, being someone who really is not able to, you know, grow into your own potential, or not able to become who you're able to be, right? That seed is in you, but you're not able to get to that point without going through the fire, without going through whatever traumatic experience it takes um, for you to finally sort of explode and, and, uh, you know, become the person that you were always able to be. Um, but at the same time, like it, it feels, so it, there's that, that potential that can be unlocked with, with, you know, great trauma or great stress. But at the same time, it's this feeling of, um, something that's so fragile, you know, something that's, that's dry and cracked and, and can just be, you know, crushed with, with the step of a foot. Um, and so I, I had named that third epistle Pinecone Sun before I wrote the poem Pinecone Sun, because I, I, you know, it felt very much like who I felt like I was for so much of my life, you know, that, that sort of, um, dry or cracked husk that could so easily be destroyed. Um, and that's, that's really what Pinecone Sun, the poem is talking about too. Um, so I can go ahead and, and read that. Great. Um, yeah. So this is Pinecone Sun. I am a shadow dreamt he was the moon. This is the way of things. 
The last time a star sets, you will feel an empty well open and not know why. I let waves wash over me to know what it means to feel lightness. And if I squeeze my eyes tight, I can pretend that I am under a thick blanket. And the weight of the ocean comes warm and calm like yesterday's sun. Tonight, I will call my mother to say that I will not be home for Christmas. But better days are coming. Somewhere between the mountain and the valley lies salvation. I hear the garden is well stocked and the epilogue is worth finishing the book. The season of sleeplessness will come. On the nights you lie awake as your breath catches hard in your ribs and your heart beats hollow through your throat. Look to the bottom of an ink black cloud. I will be watching and together we will wait for dawn. Yeah. Do you feel like that helps explain sort of the whole last section too? Yeah. You mean the, the last section of the book or the last section um, that we had just talked about? The book. I do. I do. You know, it's that, that idea um, of, you know, living in this, living in this inner place that is um, dark and, and hopeless um, you know, feeling like you you aren't living up to your potential or, you know, how you sort of imagined your life going. Um, and, uh, you know, still not giving up, still, still holding on that hope or looking for that connection to someone else, you know, with the understanding that, you know, it's not about, it's not about fixing it or it's not about, you know, getting better, but it's just about, um, you know, surviving about connecting with someone to just sit there and experience it with you. you know, I think I think that's something that uh, you know a lot of people don't get about, or people who don't who don't struggle with depression um, don't really understand about people who who are um, struggling with it. That you know, it's it's not at least my experience was it's it's not something to be fixed. You know, it's to me it's it's sort of not a separate part of my i identity like it's it's uh it's something that that i've i've experienced for so long and, and dealt with for so long that that you know it's really part of of who i am um and part of finding um or for me like part of finding part uh, my, my wife and and why i knew that um she was such a good partner is that you know she understood it you know she understood that it's it's just something that we that that I experience and, and you know she is with me and, and you know it doesn't affect the relationship, um, but it, you know it's just there. It, it's an experience, mm-hmm. and uh, you know I'm, I'm sure that my parents are going to listen to this and get very worried about me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, to me, it's it's not something that's like oh it's it's so sad or oh it's so traumatic because it's like no, it's just it simply is. Um, it simply is an experience of humanity that is taking place inside of me. Um, and, you know, it is valid and important in its own sense. And, uh, you know, the, the trouble for me comes with, with you know, really forming an attachment to it or forming an attachment to something else or, or wondering, oh, you know, why can't I get through it? To me, that that really makes it worse. Where I'm sort of fighting the process, as opposed to just sitting there and accepting it, and accepting that you know there, there are things inside of me that make me 
it's kind of predisposed to, to feel this way and that I'm going to feel that way for a little bit. And, uh, then one day I'm not going to feel that way anymore. Um, and that, that, that experience is not less valid than any of those days when, when I wake up and I'm, and I'm having a great time, you know? We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yes. So um, I would love to read El Dorado by Edgar Allan Poe. Gaily bedight a gallant knight in sunshine and in shadow had journeyed long singing a song in search of El Dorado. But he grew old this night so bold and o'er his heart a shadow fell as he found no spot of ground that looked like El Dorado. And as his strength failed him at length, he met a pilgrim shadow. Shadow, said he, where can it be, this land of El Dorado? Over the mountains of the moon, down the valley of the shadow. Ride, boldly ride, the shade replied, if you seek for El Dorado. Do you want to share why you chose that? Yeah, so this is one, you know, I, I talked earlier about, um, you know, being out in the swamp, being with, with my father around the campfire. And this is one of the poems that, that my father really, really, really loved. Um, and he would recite this to us every night when we were out there, um, and, and it really shaped, um, you know, my, my understanding and my appreciation of literature, you know, cause it made me start reading Poe when I was, you know, when I was seven, eight years old. Um, and, uh, there's just so much, so much richness in sort of those, those Gothic stories, um, that, uh, that I, I really loved. And, uh, it, it, you know, it sort of inspired me to go on and say, all right, like, what's my version of this? Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft or something you just liked. So it, this one is called beloved. And, uh, you know, this was my, so my, my name, David means beloved, right? And so my father always used to come in when he was putting here when I was getting put to bed. Um, and even when I was much, much older, he would come in, um, and sort of like look at me in bed or come and, and, you know, um, brush my hair a little bit with his hand and, and he'd say, you know, my beloved son. Um, so it was something that was always very meaningful to me. Um, so this is beloved. Born chicken legs and rubber boots, two foot deep in wet concrete. Preacher called me son of Adam, held me neath clear water till I saw fire waiting at world's end. Because the love of God is strong as whiskey and burns like lye. In new moon dreams, Hyades shines like pearls at swamp bottom. Filtered through duckweed and cigarette butts, stand thigh deep in quicksand. Cassandra washes me in wet red clay, says, the soul of the earth is older than the dark, but the stars are dim and hungry. 
worlds will eat worlds till all that's left is hunger. Calls me son of Adam. Drowns me by the cypress knees, hollow-eyed, because the price of wisdom is madness. Waken damp sheets, mud deep boots. Train whistle blows two miles north, like the wailing loon. Night is full of empty ghosts, and teeth grow loose. The eye of Taurus is bluer than before. Sees all I've done. Lungs turn to stone, like how Grandad went, and his dad before. Run towards Daddy's snores. Climb in bed by his belly. Holds me like I'm newly birthed. Calls me just beloved. Do you want to say anything else about that? Yeah, so this one, um, you know, there's there's a lot in writing this poem that made me happy um, or that, that, that satisfied me in some way. Um, you know, between, between the sort of like religion and sort of this mystical experience and then just the familial comfort. Um, you know, I love the idea of, of, uh, disease being, um, generational or like, like this feeling that, that you're fated to go the same way that, um, your, your people before you went as well. Um, just to, you know, it, 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 to me, like gives meaning to it all where it's, you know, you're part of this larger pattern. Um, and, uh, you know, something that, something that pops up, um, in a few of my poems and that I think most people just aren't going to, um, aren't going to pick up on, um, there are a lot of references in here to the King in Yellow or the Yellow King, I forget what it's called. Yeah, King in Yellow um, by Robert Chambers, um, which is, you know, it was this collection of short stories that I read um, that that really, really inspired me and that really fascinated me because, uh, you know, you have, you have sort of this recurring motif in the stories, which is uh, a play called The King in Yellow, and the idea is that when you, when someone reads this play, they, if they finish it, or at some point they become compelled to finish it, if they finish it, they go mad. And so this is one of those that has, uh, or no, this, this is Cassandra, but it's, I think it's the, it's the um, Hyades Shining, it's the Eye of Taurus, um, that are the sort of indirect references to um, the King in Yellow. So they show up in Beloved, they show up in, you know, um, Lovecraft was a city boy. They show up in Tarcosa, of course. Um, so if you like The King in Yellow, or if you're interested in it, um, definitely check out some of these poems because they'll have a little Easter egg for you. Where do you write? So I actually write most of my poems um, in my head. Um, I have no capacity for uh, for visualizing things. Like I'm, I just... I not able to see things in my head. Instead, I, I'm purely auditory. Um, and when I write poems, 
usually what happens is that there's a, there's a, a, you know, a phrase that sort of sticks in my head or a phrase that I'm interested in. And I'll explore it in my head just to, to put sounds together. Um, and then when it sounds complete in my head, um, I'll, I'll sit down and I'll actually write it out. Um, but at that point, the poem is probably 80% finished. And at that point, I'm just sort of you know, finalizing it or, or playing around with it a little bit. So it's mostly in my head. And then once I actually sit down to you know, write it on the computer, I like to, I like to be at a little, a little dining room table that we have in our apartment with some, you know, some plants around me. So there's a little bit of, a little bit of green, you know, looking out a window. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? You know, I, uh, so I, I work as an attorney, uh, and that keeps me pretty busy. Um, so really writing to me is, is its own escape where, you know, I'm, I'm working on whatever corporate documents that no one really cares that much about. It's just, you know, people want to make sure that they aren't going to lose their money. And, uh, you know, in, in two years or five years, no one's actually going to know or care about any of the work that I did, any of the, those, you know, pages upon pages of writing that I did, um, for, for, you know, these business matters. And so it's, it's important to me to come and, and have writing that's meaningful to me and that will continue to have meaning for me, um, you know, for the, for the years to come. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Uh, my wife, <laughs> she, uh, she has to hear every single poem that I write <laughs> and, uh, you know, she'll, she'll tell me what she thinks about it. And it's, it's always an interesting experience talking about it with her because, um, she's, uh, she's Armenian. So she came over here, I think when she was 20. So she, she grew up in Armenia, moved to Russia, you know, learned English when she was over here. And so it's very interesting talking about it with her because, you know, she has a, a very deep appreciation of, of literature. Um, but it's, it's, it really pushes me to make sure that I'm explaining myself well and that the poem is actually doing what I tell her that it's doing. Um, because she'll sit there and say like, okay, like, what is this? Like, what's this doing here? Why is this doing here? So in a way she's sort of like this, this editor, because I have to, I have to explain my work myself before I'm able to explain it to her. How have you dealt with rejection? You know, it, uh, it comes and you just have to, uh, to suck it up and, uh, understand that there's, there's always going to be someone who, who doesn't like what you do, even if you are like the most popular person on the planet. And so if there's always going to be someone that doesn't like what you have to offer, and why does it matter if it's you know one person or a hundred people or a thousand people who don't like what you have to offer? There's always someone's always gonna not like you, um, and that's something that I that I really had to to teach myself. Where you know like yeah, someone no matter what, someone's not gonna like it, um, and that that shaped my own writing because I I was asking or you know I, I sort of looked around and I asked myself, you know, what can I do that's unique what can i do that's really special to who i am and really authentic to my experience um and that was when i really started writing a lot of the poems that ended up in the book is that i said you know what i you know i don't care what most people want or what most people do in 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 poetry or in writing i'm just going to do what's unique to me 
Um, and you know what? People still aren't going to like it, and that's fine. But the people who do like it are going to like it so much more because it's going to be so much more honest um, about about who I am and the way that I see the world. And what is your favorite word? So it, it is uh, disappointingly non-intellectual. Right now, the word that brings me the most joy in life is please. And that's because my son is almost two years old and he is learning how to talk. And he has recently learned uh, that if he adds please to things that he normally is not allowed to do, uh, there is a chance that we will break because it is the cutest thing in the world. And he sits there, Papa, you know, he wants something. It's like, no, no, Maxine can't do this. And please, Papa, please. And it's just, you know, you sit there and you, and, and you look at him and it's, it's just this, this huge feeling of, of warmth and, and affection that, that just washes over you. And so that's, uh, that's my favorite word right now. Well, thank you so much for taking the time and being on the show. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for, for having me. If you like today's show with poet David Vandenberg, author of Love Letters to an Arsonist, check out my interview with his aunt, Laura Vandenberg. We talked about her story collection, Isle of Youth, story strategy, how to put pressure on a story to reveal pressures the characters are facing, and the creative methods she uses when she's stuck in her writing process. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 420 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Rachel Eliza Griffiths, James McBride, and Jen Shapland. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.